to tell Russia just kill them. It's most important because uh, what uh, Ukrainians, I uh, totally amazed how Ukrainians describing just uh, oh, my my house was destroyed. Okay, we're gonna rebuild it, but very important that no one was injured and no one was dead. It was like a short story. Maybe some we hear that because uh, in this marathon uh, constantly uh, interviewing people who was uh, like uh, uh, close to this front line or maybe who was like uh, not targeted but maybe have some um, some they lost something when this some shellings or some rockets so it's really important for uh, that shift focus from this Russian propaganda and focus just on the people Ukrainian life is really important and because it's matter and we people, Ukrainian people just dying and getting injured and uh, a lot of the people just uh, become I don't know how to properly say invalid meaning they just get uh, some big injuries that changes whole life in the future but they still uh, they happy they alive this most important because it is genocide it's not just territory not building all big gonna be rebuilt and it's gonna be better but life right life is most important thank you for the question thank you for answering uh does that finish your question jj absolutely excellent thank you jj and slava timu you've been waiting super patiently this evening yeah yeah hi so i think uh, of people they kind of like to justify themselves so of these people who buy into Russian propaganda in the West, I think many of them basically they just buy into it because they, it makes them feel better than just being like the 1930s, late 1930s or early 1940s isolationist. But it makes them feel better to try to justify it somehow rather than just saying, saying I, I don't, that rather, rather than just saying straight forward that they don't want to get involved because they don't care it makes them feel better to try to justify it somehow by claiming that ukrainians are bad people or something like that yes i also noticed that a lot of the people who just repeat this russian propaganda it is just for themselves just they just reinforcing their own feelings reinforcing their like uh, own ego just to be like a safe it's just way of people we ukrainians just dying uh, they just Still keeping this Russian propaganda uh, for themselves, just just to be feel safe that they are right. They own small world, they live in small world. World, so it's for us. It's like a nonsense. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, Brian and liberal. Oh, sorry, just the buddy. Even waiting so patiently. I just saw you. Yeah. Uh, actually, the thing I wanted to respond to was something that uh, it, it was a part of what Porter said which was about how seemingly intelligent people can fall for it. I think the right analogy for thinking about this is, you know, intelligence is just a characteristic. It doesn't guarantee any kind of right answer or anything like that. Many intelligent people have made mistakes before. And in that case, it's sort of like a computer that has a lot of calculating power, but the program it's running is just totally focused on overheating the computer. <laughs> and that's all it's doing. And uh, I guess uh, to follow up to, to what Slavo was saying, 
one of the best things that the Walter Report, I think, has done is it's increased people's familiarity with Ukraine because a lot of what Russia pushes as its propaganda is really actually not very brilliant. It's the sort of thing where if you have a passing familiarity, you're already going to feel a little bit off about some of the things that they try to push. Thank you, guys. This is, is why uh, Russian propaganda for me is really funny. They have nothing to do with reality. They just repeating it, but it's funny because absolutely out of the out of the space. So, just a bunny, great notes. Thank you. I mean, you know, it just you know, they pronounce this nonsense, and uh, they'll be destroyed by a wild pack of Shibuinas every time they talk. Brian, good sir. Yeah. Uh, Thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks, uh, everyone, for hosting and uh, contributing here. It, it was it, it's interesting to me, the dialogue that's been going on for the last, uh, you know, three to four months as it relates to, uh, quote unquote, escalation and what constitutes escalation. Right. So it, it's OK if we contribute high Mars, but it's not OK if we contribute F-16 fighters. <laughs> you know, and MIGs and and other, you know, support to Ukraine. So I just wanted to kind of comment on the gray area that's there, and maybe Dillman and some other folks can comment on this. Remember two or three months ago, well, we can't give Ukraine planes because that's going to be escalating the situation with Putin. Well, you know what? Fuck Putin. You know, Putin's already escalated to the nth degree. So, you know, I don't know. Can someone tell me, uh, is there is there a clear definition of escalation? And is that just a joke um, and just a, a pretense? Um, yeah, no, I, I think you're I think you're on to the right topic. I think that. Uh... You know, such language is completely inappropriate because the idea of actually sticking my naughty bits anywhere near Putin is absolutely horrifying. Nobody should be forced to do such a thing. So uh, only on the direct comment that you said earlier, I'm really kind of concerned for the idea that anybody would be forced to do that in their lifetimes. And we should really uh, deter anybody from thinking such terrible things. But no, in seriousness, yeah, like... Um, I mean, my comment when, when people talk about giving something to Ukraine is an escalation... I, I, I'm my literal comment is unless it's a nuclear weapon, I'm not in favor of giving them that giving them literally anything else after Bucha, like when it was revealed that they are throwing, you know, really, 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 they raped a toddler to death and threw the, threw the kid on a pile of bodies of their family and took a picture for posterity, right? Like after that shit happened, like what the fuck can be excellent? Like there is no escalation after that, you know, there's, there's dead bodies of civilians lining the street because they had to make a hasty exit and they just committed every single atrocity they could on the way out. So, you know, anyone who's saying, oh, we don't want to offend Russia for escalation after that. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, at, at, ever since then, I, I've literally had zero problem had President Joseph Biden just ordered the 101st Airborne to Kiev to, to support the Ukrainian military. I'd have literally no issue with this. I'd have no issue with a, with a U.S. carrier sitting in the Black Sea right now if they were 
Like, yeah, per, it, it, like personally, I'm not saying this is our military policy. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm no, just saying when you start talking about escalation outside of a nuclear weapon, because that's an escalation, there literally is nothing we that we sh- could give Ukraine, right? When, when Russia says escalation, what they really mean is we really don't want to lose this thing and we're not going to take it to nuclear war. And so as long as the Ukrainians aren't going to like march on St. Petersburg or Moscow, like that's that's all they've got. Yeah. Yeah. And I I do hope that there's a lot of things that are going on behind the scenes that we don't hear about. Right. And and that's that's a good thing. And that's an op 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 security thing. Um, I'm hoping that there are MIGs that were disassembled, that were on trains, that were going across the border that we don't know about. You know, it's really interesting to me because I've been following this not since day one, but maybe 30 or 60 days into this, uh, we have not heard a lot about the Ukrainian Air Force. And and we, we did hear that they were going to run out of planes before they ran out of pilots. But I think the less we know, sometimes that, you know, that's a good thing. And I'm, I'm just hoping that um, the Ukrainians are getting, you know, I'm, I'm talking beyond drones, uh, I'm just talking about the physical air force. I'm hoping they're getting what they need as it relates to the MIG platform that they're very familiar with. Uh, the F-16 platform, I think we all know if you've been digging into these spaces that uh, they've been training on uh, the F-16 platform for quite a while. Um, but to put that into practice is a whole nother scenario. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm just hoping that there's a lot more going on in the air that we don't know about. And, and you know, it's uh, yes, we're all educated in these spaces, but we, we certainly don't know everything that's going on um, from a day to day basis um, in, in the um, lit- literal battlefield. Yeah, no, I, I, I think we can appreciate that statement. But yeah, no. So as far as this escalation goes, it's it is rhetoric and. Quite frankly, anyone who is using it as rhetoric to block arms to Ukraines, uh, and I'm looking at the uh, spineless Olaf Schultz. Um, if you're wondering who Olaf Schultz is, open your dictionary. He's under invertebrates. If you just look under invertebrates in your dictionary, you can find Olaf Schultz there, um, and that's where you'll find him. I think Portland has raised his hand to answer this specific question, so I would like to go to him, and then we will get back to our line. Okay. Thank you. So um, regarding the Ukrainian Air Force, I'm not going to get into specifics, but what I can with confidence uh, you know, reassure you on is that they are very much alive and kicking. Um, we don't need to get into how many airframes they've got, but uh, Ukraine has been doing a tremendously skillful job of preserving their assets um, for the time when they can be more usefully employed. That time, given how uh, brutally Ukraine is putting down uh, Russian air defense assets, amongst other things, uh, but in particular, how how brutally they're putting down Russian air defense assets, that that time is approaching. Um, it's it's going to be in the next few weeks 
as the situation in Hassan uh, continues to move in very good, very healthy ways for Ukraine. Um, and I think that that is all I would like to say on that particular topic. But, you know, I do want you to know that, like, you, you've, you will have heard me if you're on this space at all. Like, I don't like sticking my neck out on, any, on anything that I don't for sure know. And this is something that I for sure know the Ukrainian Air Force is still alive and kicking. You, you know, haven't we heard about them winning sorties like in the south of Ukraine? That was that showed up like a month and a half ago or so, two months ago. And I was like, what? I thought they didn't have one. And I think I asked you and you're like, yeah, yeah, I know that there is apparently some Ukrainian planes and pilots that are still active. That I, That's that's the case, right? So, one, yes, that's the case. We continue to see evidence of them uh, doing all sorts of interesting deep strikey shit. Two, if there was no air force for Ukraine to exploit, why would the Ukrainians have invested so much time and effort and so many HIMARS rounds um, on killing... Russian air defense assets, which they have been doing with absolutely frantic abandon for 21 days now. You know, they're putting the Russians in a position where they have to operate their radars under local control, which means that they, that the Ukrainians will be able to exploit the curvature of the earth and terrain features to either get close enough to attack the remaining Russian air defense assets with weapons that they have, um, or so that they can bypass those assets completely, get way, way behind Russian lines and uh, blow shit up. It's any other interpretation of the, of the evidence to hand is completely incoherent. And just, I will tell you, I am not telling you everything that I know. Well, I always like the sound of blow shit up. It's always HIMARS o'clock in Ukraine. And with that lovely news, we will move ourselves to, I believe it is Parker, but it might be liberal. One of you go, then the other go. I think it was liberal, but if he doesn't mind, I'll go. I think you should fight about it. I want to see uh, this the cuffs, and yeah. that will decide. We're going to have let a Thunderdome. Two men enter, <laughs> one man leave, and that's yeah. who's going to go. Yeah, fight to the death. No, I'll defer. Thank you. No killer instinct, okay. man. No killer instinct. All righty. Uh, thank you, Liberal. Um, quick question. I wasn't sure if Portland could uh, answer this or not, but I saw in one of the um, one of our the United States military packages that was sent to Ukraine um, some smaller ships, um, boats. I'm not exactly sure the names. Um, but I was just curious on what they would be used for. I wasn't sure if they could put harpoons on them and if those were even capable of being able to advance, being that they're smaller. Uh, looked looked to me like more speedboat-type deals, um, if, if those would have any effect against maybe opening up a blockade or you know annoying the Russians uh, trying to open up for grain exports because i i had read that they were exported being able to export grain up <clears throat> excuse me one of the rivers 
but I know that it's still been a major issue not being able to export a lot of the grain. And I, like I said, I saw that the United States had transferred some boats, ships, whatever you want to call them, smaller vessels. Um, and I wasn't quite sure what they would be used for if you could, if you had any idea on that. Thank yeah. you. This is a little bit out of my wheelhouse because this is naval operations and I wasn't a naval guy. Um, but, you know, I can, I can, put some color on this um on this canvas so the the boats that they've been given are fast inshore attack craft they're a little too small for harpoon but they can carry sea spear and brimstone too which in many ways are more useful in the literal combat space that ukraine needs to defend um they are very fast. They have relatively small radar cross-sections. They can get lost in the clutter very easily. And they essentially make it so that it is impossible for Russia um, to come out and threaten... Hold on. Yeah, yeah we're good here. Um, to, to come in and threaten Odessa or do any kind of real work in the Northern Black Sea without a full court press, without just throwing everything in the kitchen sink at it. And now if the Russians throw everything in the kitchen sink at it, well, they've only got three reasonably modern uh, anti-air warfare destroyers left in the Black Sea, and one of them doesn't work real good. So, in effect, they've got two. Um, those ships would be more or less totally incapable of managing a simultaneous engagement from a squadron of fast inshore attack craft and... Um, shore batteries firing harpoon and neptune so it doesn't really allow the ukrainians to push out into uh the black sea and take the fight to the russian navy but it also means that the russian navy can't push into the literal space and take the fight to ukraine gotcha thank you which if you think about it is a necessary precursor to uh, to a Ukrainian push along the south. If Russia was able to land, say, an amphibious brigade, which in theory they have the capacity to do, behind a Russia, uh, sorry, a Ukrainian advance as it breaks out of Kherson, gets into that good tank country and makes a dash for Melitopol. That's kind of the worst imaginable scenario for the Ukrainians. So, you know, what you've got here is is a a perfect piece of battlefield shaping um, that that I think that we will all have to just, you know, learn to appreciate the uh, the skill with which this has been executed. Hey, Portland, I'm just going to gently push back and say that the Russians are not going to land an amphibious assault on Odessa. I think they're going to get smoked. Um, but that said, um, if you were the like field commander of the Ukrainian forces in the South and President Zelensky said, hey, Portland, I need you to recapture all of Ukraine. Do you have a strategy to uh, make that happen? 
Yes. Please elucidate. <laughs> okay, so step one, um, like it, it works exactly the way that you would win a bar fight. Okay, you're up against somebody that's bigger. So if you get into a boxing match, you're going to lose. So you've got to think about, okay, what does this guy need to fight? Well, he needs to be able to think and communicate, i.e. his brain needs to be able to give instructions to the rest of his body. Um, He needs to see so that he can find targets, and he needs to be able to breathe. Okay, so if you can't see, you can't fight. If you can't breathe, you can't fight. Um, If your bell's been rung, you can't fight. So what we are ultimately trying to do here is take a single large cohesive force, which by virtue of being an institution rather than an individual, um, is sociopathic. It cannot be dissuaded. It has no sense of its own mortality. Um, It is utterly ruthless, okay? It is humans operating in an inhuman machine. This is basically all military forces, more so with the Russians, but, you know, ultimately all military forces work the same way. The, The trick is to take that single cohesive whole and break it down into 22,000 individuals who are all extremely aware that they can die. Okay, so step one, deny access to resources. In this case, you know, in the bar fight metaphor, uh, take away the ability to breathe. You can do this in a lot of interesting ways. You can hit somebody in the throat. Um, You can uh, hit them in the solar plexus. Uh, cause their diaphragm to spasm. Um, You've got a lot of different options. What we are seeing happening on the battlefield is that Ukraine is killing every supply dump that it can find. And with one third of the striking power that they should have by the end of this month, they have reduced Russian munitions throughput by about 25%. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's your metaphor for breathing. An army runs on fuel, bullets, and lubricant. Okay? It needs food too, but I can live without food for three days. If I run out of bullets, fight's over right now. Okay? So, step one, kill the supply depot. Okay? Step two, blind them, which in this case is synonymous with killing their air defense assets. Okay, well, we're seeing that too now. Now that Ukraine is satisfied with the progress of its um, strikes on Russian uh, ammunition depots, they are reprioritizing air defense assets. They, They killed that massive supply dump like three days ago. Um, I would strongly contend uh, in large part because it was where all of the reloads for their S-300, S-400 batteries were stored. Once once those assets are, let's just call it like severely limited, um, Ukraine's freedom of action is hugely increased. Okay, it's like fighting a guy that can like basically only see you out of one eye or has blurry eyes or what have you. Step three, kick him in the knees, kick him in the head, 
and keep going uh, until you've fucking rung his bell. Okay. Now, what where that fits into the metaphor here is that's killing command and control networks. Okay. So we've seen in the last three days, Ukraine has hit three battalion scale command posts, a brigade scale command post, a divisional command post in which they killed the entire command staff for the 20th Guards Motor Rifle Division and the chief of staff for the 22nd Combined Arms Army. Right. Um, And, you know, when you look at that building, they were not shy about how many rounds that they put into that thing. I counted that as between nine and 12 HIMARS. They went absolutely hog wild because they, and the only reason you would devote that many missiles to that kind of target is because you know who's in there. Um, They killed probably 150 other senior officers in that in that strike okay well that's now an army that can't see can't breathe can't give coherent instructions and now it's just a matter of reminding all of those individual cells one at a time that they can die then you send in the tanks what have, have there been any sorry go on have there been any uh, major booms over the past uh, 12 hours? Not really. Um, well, the, there have been a bunch, but none that I have good data to analyze. And, you know, I'm not totally sure what's going on right now. Okay, so lots of uh, medium-sized ones, but nothing that, uh, that set any records compared to the previous oh, week. Nothing Nothing that will ping on the Richter scale. Okay, fair enough. All right. Hey, Portland, I have a question for you. Uh, should um, the Ukrainian forces be trying to target the uh, EW weapons of the Russian forces? Because it seems like uh, they've doubled their efforts to try to jam, you know, the frequencies of uh, the Ukrainian drones and may somehow, like, uh, disaffect their ability. So... Um, electronic warfare against drones is a problem, but it's not as big of a problem as people generally think. And I've been having some very interesting conversations with people over the last 24 hours about things that the Ukrainians have been, um, I don't want to say asking for help with, um, conversations have been had over the last 24 hours about ways to take the distributed aperture system that most medium and high grade drones have um, and converting them or, or adapting them through software to act as a um, home on jam system so that you can. Okay. So when, when you jam a drone, it generally does one of two things. It looks at the source of the jamming and it measures the intensity of the jamming at the three antennas that it uses for picking up regular radio signals. And um, by comparing the very small differences, it can determine where that jamming is coming from and therefore turn its tail towards the jamming 
and go to full throttle and fly out of the the uh, area that is being jammed and so re-establish contact. Or it can, if it has an INS system, it can follow pre-programmed waypoints um, to get out of that jamming um, and so re-establish contact. However, if you take that same system and instead of saying, okay, turn your tail to the enemy, go to full throttle and run, you put a two and a half pound explosive form penetrator in the nose and you tell it, if you detect jamming, turn your nose to the jamming, go to full throttle and dive on it. Well, now you've just turned drone into a low cost loitering munition um, anti-radiation missile. Yeah, I was going to add that um, any EW system would emit a big yeah. signature and be uh, susceptible to uh, anti-radiation missiles. I know that the Ukraine army may not have that right now, but um, it's something that can be done. It's it's something that can be done, and it's something that can be done very quickly and easily with drones that they already have. Um. If uh, if we have a moment, I believe Brian has been waiting very patiently to ask a question. Uh, yeah, well, wow. I mean, I've, I've been um, tracking the Walter Report and various other, uh, you know, spaces for a few months now. And it's right now, I, I think it's getting harder to ask the smart questions because this definitely uh, seems like, it's a, it's a long game, not a short game, right? It's uh, I I, mean, uh, I have some Ukrainian friends here in New Jersey and the United States, and I was hoping this would be over sooner rather than later. But it looks like it's it's obviously not going to be over um, sooner rather than later. So uh, I guess um, I'm not even sure I need. I, I'm asking a question here, but I think Ukraine needs everything, right? They need they need the high Mars. They need uh, regular everyday munitions for the AK-74s and everything that the folks on the ground uh, that are on the front lines, uh, the, the things that that they need. It's just across the board, you, Ukraine needs support. And uh, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss as to what to ask from a... Um, military uh perspective here because i think i'm you know i'm thinking about what's going on in the air force how many by rock tars do they have um how how are they doing on 155 munitions and uh, the whole nine yards it, it's it's a very all-encompassing um thought process for me right now because this is not going to be a short uh you know, situation, uh, you know, we can all speculate, is this going to go six months, nine months, 12 months, 18 months? Obviously, um, it, it's better for both sides if this ends sooner rather than later. But um, I'm wondering if there's any experts out here, out there in the space that are really drilling down and, and are saying, hey, this is what we need the most. And I'm assuming that's more high Mars for long-distance attacks, but just not sure. Thanks, everyone. Portland, that's a you question. 
That is a me question. Uh, sorry, guys, you have to listen to this fucking mug. Um, okay, so that's a really good question. Um, and the short answer is um, more high Mars would be nice. But if I had to pick one thing that Ukraine needs more than anything else right now, um, it's armored fighting vehicles. It's it's tanks, uh, mechanized infantry combat vehicles, IFVs, and APCs. They need every single one that they can get. We are past the point of arguing about whether it would be ideal for them to get um, Marders and Leopards or whether it would be better for them to get Abrams and Bradleys. It doesn't matter. They are... Like they are in a place right now where, you know, ultimately, I'm not sure how, what the best way of expressing this is. Um, the terms on which Ukraine is going to win this war are being set right now. And the only way that, that they can. Okay. If Ukraine had, I'm picking a fairly round number here, call it 2,200 armored fighting vehicles ready to go east of Kherson right now, and I knew that they were there, um, I would say, no, Ukraine's got this. The Russian offensive has petered out. Russia has run out of steam. Um, we all saw that coming, and they have squandered their offensive power on, you know, political goals. They've outrun their supply lines. This is the moment of greatest risk for the Russians. Therefore, Ukraine should attack now with everything that it has. Do I know they have those vehicles? No, I don't know. I suspect that they have a large proportion of that. But if I think maybe they have enough, I'd feel a lot better if they had another thousand. I really would. And at this stage, I'm not picky. When you say not picky, can you explain for us non-military people what you mean? Is that a thousand light trucks with a machine gun on the back and is a technical? Is that a thousand? Is, is that a thousand of anything from a, 40 year old tank to a be it to a modern IFV what's a thousand of what um a thousand armored combat vehicles so that is um modern um I would say anything from the twardy on up um the uh the Polish Ukrainian developed twardy is is like that's as good as you can make a t72 it's it's a very, very creditable tank. It's better than anything the Russians have. And as long as Ukraine has more kit and better kit than Russia can bring to bear on the battlefield at the moment of decision, um, the question of how much better and how much more is just the matter that, that's just haggling over the price that's going to be paid in blood. Ukraine's going to do it anyway. I would much rather they had you know, 400 Abrams, 600 Bradleys, right? Because the price in blood there is going to be much cheaper than doing this on BMP3s and Twardies. But right now, when I say I'm not picky, I'm looking at that and I'm saying, well, if it's the choice between Twardies 
and nothing, I'll take the twatties. That's what Ukraine needs right now. I, I, I am absolutely confident that if Ukraine felt like it had enough armor, it would have launched the Kherson offensive already. Portland, I got a question for you. Let's, let's play a hypothetical. If somebody told you that uh, Ukraine just imported 200,000 tons of diesel, what would you say? Oh, you know, Ukraine's getting ready to, to uh, knock somebody's teeth in. They didn't by any chance just import 200,000 tons of diesel, did they? Maybe. Oh, there you go. That's suspicious. Uh, suspicious in the best way. Um, sorry, let's, uh, let's go to some more hands. Uh, I'm not sure who was first. Finance, was JJ first or Peter first? Uh, we're, we're just on uh, Thunderdome plans. JJ was uh, the last first person one to let up, so she can't be first. We're just letting everyone fight it out. So uh, two men enter, or two men and lady enter. One man leaves, if we're confused. Uh, best May the best uh, fighter win. I can jump in if you like, in between them and red. Uh, I'll, or we'll just throw Axel in too. You know, we'll just have three people in. Pure blood match. No, I think... I think it is Peter, then Liberal, then JJ. Ryan, if you ever had a hand up, it's gone down because you've talked. So we've yet to call on you, but you had a hand up way earlier. We're good. I took it down deliberately. All right, then all good. Peter, good sir. Welcome to the Walter Report. Hey, good evening, everybody. I just want to thank you for participating in this space. It's amazing every day learning new things here. The wisdom of Yehuda and Walter and Doman and finance and the amazing elucidation that Portland brings to everything in the military realm and CJ and John Spencer and so many others that get invited here. Thank you for still being here. Thank you for supporting Ukraine. I'm just thrilled to be here. And so uh, one statement is that democracy evolves quicker than autocracy. It always will. It's always going to win. It's messy. Democracy is messy. It's unfathomable as far as how messy it is. But it will always beat autocracy because there is no one on earth smart enough ever to rule over a couple of hundred million people and think they are going to win in the end through their own originality. It can't happen. It doesn't happen. It will never happen. It has been the case for hundreds of years. And I'm not talking about just the recent last century, but hundreds of years. And this is going back to what something that Axel says every now and then. Culture, everything is downstream of culture. And that's exactly what that is. Democracy will always out-evolve autocracies. And a quick question for Portland. Sorry. Um, have you been to La Pigeon? And how is their tasting menu recently? And then another question. As far as the EIRP, like, seeking device. So, like, let's say you have the drone. And it's seeking EIRP. It, you said it, it's going to have a certain warhead on it. But is it going to be fragmentation or is it just going to be specific to that? Like we're thinking vehicle or man. Uh, oh, thank you so much for being here. You thank have you. a lovely evening. I mean, I, I have to say that I'm I'm lucky to be considered in the company of such luminaries as uh, as CJ and John Spencer. You know, I'm I'm, you know, 
I'm, I, I don't have anywhere near their military credentials. So uh, thank you. That's very kind. Um, so the the specific job that you would want to do with those um, would demand an explosive form penetrator warhead. You want the lightest possible warhead for killing a specific vehicle. Um, and you don't really care about how much of a mess it makes of whatever else is around it. Uh, and, you know, really, when you've got that requirements list, there's only one candidate, and that's an EFP. What's an EFP, Portland? Explosive formed penetrator. It's basically when you um, pack a bunch of explosives around a copper or tungsten rod shaped in such a way as to cause all of the energy from that explosion to go into that rod which causes it to plasmate um it also accelerates it very very violent in the very short period of time um because this stuff is is so hot, it radiates heat away very, very efficiently, and it therefore cools down very quickly. So the end result is a spear of tungsten traveling at around 10 kilometers a second um, with a very, very intense, uh, very, very extreme length to thickness ratio, which gives you extremely high um, sectional density. And that sectional density combined with its extreme speed makes it penetrate armor very, very efficiently. So if you're looking for the lightest possible warhead for punching a hole in the top deck of a lightly armored vehicle, you want an EFP round. So can you explain that in English? Like the way I would try to explain that to my, my uh, young son who you hear say Slavia Ukrainian in the mornings, because he likes to hear that. And all I understood is that sounds like the most phallic way to kill something behind a metal wall possible. It is exactly that. It is it is the most phallic way of murdering things imaginable. Okay. I, okay. I will explain it as a flaming metal penis that goes through walls. Got it. <laughs> so, so basically, um, one of your big limitations in, in penetrating armor from a, a light platform is that armor penetration is a function of sectional density. So you want a projectile that is as narrow and long as you can make. But projectiles that are long and narrow require quite substantial launching mechanisms, like big-ass barrels, um, which are expensive and hard to make and generally a pain in everybody's ass, right? So what you're doing is you're using explosives to take a short, fat tungsten rod and explosively forge it into a very long, thin tungsten rod that is going very, very fast. They used concave copper discs in Iraq. The concave copper discs were very specifically shaped um, more conically, and they were manufactured in Iran the U.S. military determined that the specificity of the manufacturing process was carried out in Iran, and that's how they determined that uh, the Iranian government was assisting insurgents and Iraqi militants with building roadside bombs that were used to kill numbers of American soldiers with modified artillery rounds or the explosive uh, material that was pulled from them. 
That's how you make an IED. Got it. Thank you. Uh, I believe it's, uh, is it liberal or JJ? I think it's liberal. Okay, we can go with JJ. That's cool. Thanks. Good morning, Doman. I talked to you the other day. It's good to see you. Um, And thanks for having me back, Finance. I um, have a question for Portland, the man of the hour, it seems. Um, Portland, how long ago was it um, that you got out of the military? So I got out of the British Army in 2009, went to the the U.S., um, worked in the U.S. as a private investigator doing Cool. Um, uh, death penalty defense, specifically focusing on fact investigation, which includes uh, forensic reconstruction. Wow. Um, and then I um, I volunteered um, with the YPG for nearly three years. Wow. Um, so, well, the reason I was asking you this is because um, I'm wondering if you had to pick like one or two um, weapons or pieces of equipment that have been developed since you served um, and applying those to Ukraine, what might those be? Like the two that you think are the most helpful and have um, been the most effective. So the weapons that I would send to Ukraine right now, if I had a blank check, um, would be Abrams and Bradley. And those are both quite uh, quite proven weapons. Um, both designs are actually older than I am. But nevertheless, those would be the ideal weapon systems for the situation that Ukraine finds itself in. So it doesn't have to necessarily be new and fancy. Nope. Nope. I mean, you know, so... The thing is, is that my military career kind of spanned the, uh, really the dronification of warfare, right? That's, that's, you know, the big theme of uh, the development of warfare for as long as I've been studying it. And drones are awesome. Drones are a force multiplier, but you cannot take and hold ground with drones, Drones just make everything else you have work better. And if you don't have anything else, drones don't help. That's fair. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Portland. Thanks, JJ. Liberal. Thanks, gentlemen. Welcome to Europe. Uh, we've essentially crossed over. Um, so yeah, so Portland, great to have you in this space. Um, question to you. If you were promoted to the Ministry of Defense and you are... Like high miles o'clock, um, you're attacking uh, ammo depots, uh, maybe troop concentrations. Um, where would you, assuming that you've struck, you know, all these uh, uh, strategic ammo depots, like where are you training your fire? If you have high Mars and you know you don't have a lot, but you have, you know, to be judicious about your application, uh, where would you? focus these um, HIMARS, if you had an opinion on that. Um, are you asking where would I focus them next, or where would I focus them now, or where would I focus them after I was satisfied that the command and logistics elements of the problem had been solved? Okay, let me restate that. 
so command and control, uh, command post, um, assuming that you've been able to uh, neutralize CPs and ammo depots, like what's next? Is it electronic warfare equipment? Um, where would you as a field marshal or general train your fire if you had HIMARS at your disposal? So, so let's go through the list. Doesn't make sense to go after artillery because if I've already knocked out all of their ammo depots, they don't have enough uh, artillery to keep the guns fed, and therefore artillery is more of an, an annoyance than it is anything else. Um, it doesn't make sense to go after infrastructure um, unless I am worried about. Uh, about them getting their logistical legs back under them. So that's out. So what I'm going to uh, do next is I'm going to start trotting out my stockpile of M30A1s instead of the M31. And I am going to start whacking um, large troop concentration. I'm not going to attack the front line. What I'm going to do is I'm going to attack all of their marshalling units. Everywhere that they have to concentrate large numbers of troops for doing any kind of interesting logistics or feeding large numbers of troops into the front line, I'm going to kill them. Once I've killed them, so there's a a sort of methodology where you start at the furthest back um, from the battle area that you can reach. And as you kill targets in priority, what you do is you start moving closer and closer to your own lines, killing the stuff uh, that is closest to you last. That makes total sense. Thank you. Thank you. And again, like, you know, I've got to tell you guys, I made it through staff college and then my military career ended like two weeks later. So, you know, don't put too much stock in anything I have to say. There are people on this space periodically that that know this a lot better than I do. Thank you for your service, Portland. It seems uh, thank you for your support of the Kurds. Axel, so I, you're hot yeah, micing. Yeah, I did. I was hot micing because I wanted to congratulate Portland on the fact that he said exactly the same things, which uh, you know, John Spencer and uh, CJ as well as uh, our fair generals, have all indicated, because the logic which uh, he presented is absolutely fair and is completely consistent with what military strategy in such a war should be, given the fact that we have no real uh, dominance or at least any capacity to establish it in certain instances or regions. But yes, absolutely. And as soon as they start hitting those further afield uh, troop concentrations, then you know... Christmas is coming. Well, I'm not so and sure about that. we're not far off that, given the fact that I think Portland is right, that we're moving to the longer-range gimlers, or have moved already, sorry, that our friends have moved to the longer-range gimlers and are about to utilize um, other long-range missiles rather soon. Hey, Axel, um, do you see another Russian offensive being launched as this quote-unquote pause um, by the Russian forces is in place? Uh, for me personally, it seems like they've exhausted their um, weaponry, and with the uh, HIMARS o'clock, um, you know, twenty-two th- uh, attacks, um, 
have they exhausted their momentum and are they capable of launching